Each of you, in Jesus' name, it's good to be here this morning. Leon Miller, when he was here, he asked me if I've ever preached messages on the family. And sometimes I have so many failures in an area that I kind of avoid preaching on certain things. And so I said, no, I've never really just focused on the family because everyone can see my family. (laughs) That's the worst part. If you come from out of state, you can preach on the family and then go back home and no one knows any different. But so I'm not going to preach so much about myself, but I want to focus on the family and what God's ideals are for our family and that each of us can learn from this. So this is going to be a series on the family. And I'm not going to be bound by that series. It could be two messages. It could be five messages. There could be other messages in between. But this is part, this is the start, this is the foundation, and then we'll continue from there as the Lord leads. So we're going to take a deep dive into scriptures. We're going to study God's original intent. What was the purpose for the family? What is the purpose today? Uh, Has God's purpose or basic purpose for the family changed over the last 6,000 years. So today, let's start with laying the groundwork, and I'll I'll just take you to where it all started for me. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5, and we'll keep coming back here as the series progresses. We're not going to dwell so much on Ephesians 5 today, but this is just the groundwork. This is where it started in my mind. So Ephesians 5, starting at verse 22 to 33 says, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husband as unto the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but it shall be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own body, that he that loveth his, his wife loveth himself. For no man yet hateth his own flesh, but nourisheth it and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body and of his flesh and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. 
This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. So as I was reading Ephesians 5.22, at a, at a casual glance, it looked like uh, Paul either had ADHD or kept losing his train of thought because he would talk about the husband and wife relationship, and then he would skip over and he would talk about the church and members in particular. Then he'd jump back and talk about the husband and wife again. Then he would talk about Christ and Christ dying and Christ giving himself for the church. And then he'd talk about the husband giving, and he, he was jumping back and forth. And then verse 32, he says, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Now, my goal was to uncover this great mystery. And I don't know that I uncovered the great mystery of it all. But as we go through this series, hopefully the mystery will become less mysterious. So at this point, you may be thinking, well, if he's going to talk about marriage and husband and wife, you know, that doesn't apply to me. I'm not married, not in that kind of relationship. Well, there's something here for everyone. And before I get into the family, I actually want to dwell on some of singlehood and what it looks like before marriage. The more I studied marriage in the family, the church, the more I realized that Paul knew exactly what he was talking about, or else that the Holy Spirit through Paul, he for sure knew exactly what he was talking about. And the picture in my mind that slowly formed was the family as a model of the kingdom of God. And so think about it from that perspective. If you think about the family relationship as a model of Christ, the Godhead, Christ and and all that what we're it becomes a more important aspect if we're a model of something that's a heavenly uh, design so God designed man and his family in a very specific way and the intent was to point back to God and I also think that God still wants us to follow his original design so if you go to the beginning of Genesis something I noted you don't find Christians in the beginning of Genesis, and you don't find Jews in the beginning of Genesis. Okay, what do you find? You find people that followed God's principles, and you find those who did not. And so I think this sermon has something for all of us, no matter where we find ourselves in society or whatever it is, our background, our teachings. I want to go back to the very beginning and just study God's principles. And so this morning, I... As I was thinking about marriage and the family, I thought we'll start at the beginning and then we'll work our way backwards. So we're going we're gonna to start at marriage, but we're going to kind of go backwards because Satan from the very beginning of time has set out to destroy God's design. And the more I studied the family, the more I realized why Satan is so intent on destroying the family because it, it's against everything that Satan wants to accomplish. He wants to destroy the church. He wants to destroy me and you. And the easiest way and a more effective way is to destroy our families. Also, a thing I want us to know from the start is that Satan is the father of lies. In John 8, 44, it says uh, he, uh, Jesus was talking to the Pharisees and scribes, and he says, you are, the you are of your father the devil, the lust of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is the liar and the father of it. So if the family was designed by God, 
to bring God glory, to bring God pleasure, to point to God, to represent the headship order, is it any wonder that Satan wants to destroy that? So before family, what do we have? We have the husband and wife relationship. Before there's ever family, there should be a husband and wife relationship. Um, now after Adam and Eve, every human that was born was born from a family. They were the only ones that came, they didn't start with a family. They just started as individuals. But after that, you were all part of a family at one point in time. So this is something very familiar to each one of us. And in a family, there's the children, and the children are repeatedly called. It says, children, obey your parents. They need to learn submission, learn how to relate to authority, learn obedience, learn how to do as they're told. A good godly marriage, I realized, starts long before marriage. And, and I think that's something we so often miss. And they, I guess we allow people to get married fairly young. And so as we, we kind of learn as we go along. But something I want to instill in the young people is that if you want to have a godly marriage, you need to start with a godly lifestyle right now. And it will affect your marriage as you get into it. So... I might take it a step further that a, a good godly marriage starts before the person even knows another person exists. It starts with your one-on-one -on -one relationship with Christ. It starts with already reading your Bible, already having a devotional time, already having a time of quiet and prayer. Because as a single person, there's, you have a lot more time to do that. When you have a family and the responsibilities of caring for a family, these things won't just come naturally if you haven't been doing them prior to marriage. So there's many different types of families. Um, we've probably all heard the term uh, dysfunctional family, and maybe you're even part of such a thing. Uh, it's possible, you know, there's dysfunctional families, and Satan loves dysfunctional families. And, and all it takes to have a dysfunctional family is one of the members within the family not doing their role. It's oversimplifying it, but as a father, if I don't do my role and lead out as I should, if I don't um, love my children, if I don't have devotions, if I'm not in my proper role, my family will automatically be a dysfunctional family because I'm working outside of what God has told me to do. Well, Satan, if he can't get the father, will start with the mother. And if he can't get the mother, will start with the children. And he'll work at the family from all these different areas because he wants the family to fail. Well, within America, many families start before marriage, which is not the way to start a family. And yet many people can't explain why there's school shootings why there's uh, teen suicide, why there's mass incarceration of young people. And if you look at the home, I think you can start to understand why all these things exist. Because the home has been destroyed and children used to be taught to respect authority. Children used to be brought to church and they used to go to Sunday school and they used to say, yes, sir, and yes, ma'am. And, and these things, the whole society, as 
Satan has slowly destroyed the family, he's also, if you look around, destroying society around us. So turn with me to Genesis 2. Genesis 2, 20 to 25. And Adam gave names to all the cattle and to the fowl of the air and to every beast of the field, but for Adam was, no, was not found in help meet for him. And the Lord God caused the deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof, and the rib which the Lord God had taken from man he, he made a woman and brought her unto the man, and Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. And then if you turn with me to the New Testament, to Mark 10, we have a parallel scripture there. Uh, Mark 10, or Jesus alludes back to Genesis. If we go to Mark 10 and read verses 6 through 9. It says, But from the beginning of the creation God made them male and female. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. So then they are no more twain but one flesh. What God hath joined together, let not men put asunder. So when I was studying this thing of marriage and when I looked at what marriage is and what marriage is not, I had some unanswered questions that I never fully answered and maybe God will continue to help. But let's look at this uh, thing of marriage and I want your interaction here. What makes a marriage official? And I'll give you just a first one that I thought of. The first one that came to mind was the vow. Okay, so I think of a vow. What else, if you think of a marriage ceremony, what would you say makes it official? Some of you got married. Witnesses. Witnesses, <laughs> yeah. The pronouncement of husband and wife before Pro God. Okay, pronouncement. Anyone sign any papers? I think I signed a marriage license. Oh recognized by the state of Virginia, I believe, and the witnesses signed on that paper. A man and a woman, right? It has to be a couple there. And so that, those are all the things that came to my mind. This is what makes a marriage official. And so where in the Bible do we find the first wedding vows? I thought, let's go back to the first wedding vows. Let's look at them, and we can just see how this all works out. Well, I couldn't find them. I can, there is no place in scripture where you find a husband and wife exchanging wedding vows. Now, that doesn't mean it's not a good idea to do that. But there's not a specific scripture that says these people got married and now they're exchanging wedding vows. Um, how about the marriage license? So I said, at least the, let's look for the marriage license. So I start looking for the marriage license. Once again, I look through scriptures and I went to various passages of scriptures that involved people getting married and weddings, and I, and I didn't find anything about marriage license either. And some will say that um, 
In Deuteronomy, it talks about a bill of divorcement. And so there was obviously a contract prior to that if they were annulling a different contract. But that was as close I found a marriage license. Now, I sell real estate, and sometimes for a living, and sometimes simply for the fun of it. And <laughs> depending on how, how things work out. Um, but, in, but in every case, I have signed contracts for these properties. And so people sign a contract, they put down earnest money, they say, you know, I want the property. Um, and I think Dale did a really good job of explaining to us the Jewish wedding. He, he broke it down in a real simplistic way. Uh, a young man goes to his father, says, there's a lady over here I want to marry. And so the young man and his father, they go over to this other's father's house and they, they have a discussion, say, I want to marry the daughter. Uh, the father then asks the daughter, if, if he's a good father, hey, do you want to marry this young man? They discuss a gift, I think it's called now, before it was like a price for the daughter, but they discuss what the gift will be, and then the young man goes home and arranges for the wedding. People will argue that there needs to be a marriage license for the marriage to be official. And if not, you'd have simply two people living together and there'd be nothing officially binding to ensure that the couple stays together. Uh, the paper serves that purpose. Well, in real estate, I've had multiple contracts signed at the risk of great monetary loss, and people have backed out of them anyway. So the paper did no good. Um, that They would have to take them to court, and the lawyers would end up making more than what the people would get reimbursed for fighting over this in court. So to me, a piece of paper is, is not that binding. Am I against marriage license and vows? Not in the least. Both actually make a good deal of sense to me when I think about the marriage. But I have a higher ideal than simply being bound by a paper or a few words. My marriage is bound by God himself. And when I realize that, it gives a higher importance and it preludes everything that goes on in my marriage because if my marriage is a reflection of Christ in the church, my actions either promote Christ in the church or they negate what Christ and the church stand for. Now, young men and young ladies, when you think that you're in love with a person of the opposite sex, I want you to realize that once you're joined in marriage, you're no longer two people. Okay, it says two shall become one. You're not two people anymore. And God recognizes that as being one. And that supersedes all else. But the world that we live in, the pro promiscuity abounds. So there's songs, there's television, there's movies, there's novels, there's other forms of media that depict the idea of falling in love, um, being controlled or out of control with our passions, just like, oh, I'm so passionately in love, and then we just started kissing or something. Okay, it, it portrays that as being a positive thing. We're just madly in love and, oh, we can't control ourselves. Um, it gives the idea of premarital affairs or extramarital affairs as being something that's exciting and it, it promotes these things in our world. And a godless world may even have sense enough to call this uh, partaking of the forbidden. 
Okay, we've probably heard some of that. Partaking of the forbidden. Well, Eve took of the forbidden fruit. And what did it do? It brought her satisfaction. It brought her happiness. It brought her joy. It brought her peace. No, it didn't bring her any of that stuff. When she partook of what Satan said will bring you all these things, it brought the exact opposite. It brought her death. 1 Corinthians 7.1 says, Now concerning the things whereof ye wrote unto me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman, nevertheless to avoid fornication. Let every man have his own wife, and let every woman have her own husband. So it says it's good for a man not to touch a woman, vice versa, but to avoid fornication. What is fornication? The Greek word for fornication is pornea. It's where we get the term pornography. Um, it's the idea of any sexual relation outside of marriage. It can be harlotry, it can be incest, it can be pornography, it can be idolatry. There's probably more that fit into this category. But to avoid becoming involved in such behavior, God designed a proper place for a man and woman to enjoy physical intimacy. And yet God has not called everyone to be married. But he has called everyone to be holy. And that's something important for single men to remember. So he may not have called you to be married, but he has called you to be holy. And with Christ in your heart, it is possible. And it is necessary. Um, and so God has called us to live a pure life before him. And I like in Revelations, uh, it talks about young men that had not defiled themselves and they had a special part in heaven and around the throne and singing and different stuff like that. And you will not find many young men in our world who have not defiled themselves, either with pornography or lustful behavior or whatever it is, you will find very few such men. And it's sad, um, but it's what we live in. Young men, keep yourselves pure. If I have one central regret in my life, it's that I didn't take purity before God more serious as a young person. I thought, well, who am I hurting? It's just me, right? But it's, it, it's a, God calls it a sin against yourself, okay? So a lot of sins you commit, um, but this, this sin of letting your purity go, you, can, um, you don't get back innocence. Does that make sense? You don't get back. Once you lose your innocence, it just doesn't come back. It's gone forever. And so protect your innocence. Um, and people told me the same thing, but I will tell you, young men, it's vitally important. And if you want to have a, a good marriage and you want to have a blessed marriage, there's no better way than to enter it in the absolute purest of ways that you can. Does that mean that if you've sinned, there's no forgiveness? No, there's grace. The grace was sufficient for me. It means I had to confess my sin, I had to forsake my sin, but it also means I deal with regrets and things that I can't erase. Um, I, was, I was forgiven though, and I can live in victory. And because of the grace of God, my wife and I have a great marriage. But what could have it been if I had been more faithful, if I had kept myself more pure? It could be even better. And, it, you know, there's things that I cannot change. 
that I wish I would, could have. First Corinthians six fifteen. Here's some stuff that I just simply don't understand fully, but it's worth taking a look at and just bringing it to our our attention. First Corinthians six fifteen to twenty. Know ye not that your bodies are the members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them the members of a harlot? God forbid. What? Know ye not that he that is joined to an harlot is one body? For two saith he shall be one flesh. But he that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. Flee fornication. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body. But he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which ye have of God? Ye are not your own, for ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Now I'll see if I can say this. This is not in my notes. But when I was thinking, the Bible talks about the abomination of desolation as mentioned by the prophet Daniel. And that's when something is whole, unholy it reveals itself in the temple of God and it promoted itself as God. So I was thinking, if I'm the temple of God, what am I allowing in my life that would be unholy and promote itself as God in my life? It just made that, I don't know if, maybe I'm way off of course, but just ponder that. That's extracurricular activity. But verse 16, it says, God uses the same language for a man going to a prostitute and a man who marries a woman. And that's what I don't quite understand, but there's some serious implications in this thing of fornication. It says, he that is joined to an harlot is one body. It's the exact same language that he uses in marriage. That, that um, stuck out to me. Are we desecrating as Christians, as followers of God, if we don't flee fornication, we're desecrating the temple of God because we are the temple of God. And I don't see a great deal of difference between the sin of pornography and the sin of going to a prostitute. I don't see a great deal of difference in either one of those. Um, and I would like to. <laughs> you, you'd say, well, one's worse than the other. I don't know. I think as man, we always try to downplay the sin that we've had to deal with. And we're like, oh, I don't think it's as bad. I only found one place in scripture where God told a man to go marry a prostitute. It was Hosea. He said, I want you to go marry a, a whore and, or a lady that was in whoredom. And what stuck out to me with that whole scenario was that Hosea didn't have a hard time finding this person in the land of Israel and Judah. Now, if you'll go to Deuteronomy and Leviticus, every, almost every case of sexual in intimacy outside of marriage was punishable by death. So why then was it so easy for Hosea to find such a person? Um, it's just a question to me, and it shows how far Israel and Judah had went away from the... the the direct plan or the law that God had placed. Now, if you think of the wages of sin as death, the type of punishment or the way it's handled may have changed. So if I fornicate or if I commit adultery, I am not stoned. 
does that mean there's not death? It still means there's death. It's maybe delayed judgment. But so intimate relations outside of marriage are shameful and need to be avoided. But within marriage, intimacy is blessed by God. Hebrews 13, 4 says, Marriage is honorable in all, and the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. And in Genesis it said, both, um, They were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were unashamed. There's nothing shameful about intimacy within marriage. So why then is the question about what is marriage so important? Well, Part of what I see in our society, and when I see it in the society, I don't want to see it in the church, is that there's women and there's grandparents raising children, and the father's not around. And, and how does this come about? Uh, lack of commitment. You know, the, the willingness for couples just to shack up. You hear it all the time. Well, we're just going to live together. Well, that, that was never God's intention. To live immorally before marriage destroys the family before it even starts. This, this whole thing of um, not keeping oneself pure. I know a couple in this community that lived together for seven years, and they had a child together, and the woman wanted some stability in her life. And she wanted to know that this man that she had been living with for seven years was going to stick with her. So she said, can we get married? And he's like, well, why not? We've been living together for seven years, and we have a child together. Let's get married. And they got married, and to my knowledge, the marriage lasted one year. Why was that? I think it could have been a legit marriage. But why was it that only Satan didn't want <laughs> there to be this? He wanted to destroy it. God is a God of order, and when we take what God has put in the proper order and we change it around, we mess up what God has designed. And, and we say, well, sin entered the world, so God can't expect for us to live like his ideals. I, the closer we can get to God's ideal, the better off as a human race will be, and the better off as a church will be. I don't know why we try to excuse our ideals. There's so many people that try to explain away Scripture. I want to explain Scripture and say, let's be doing what God says. The government now recognizes same-sex relationships, and they call them marriages. That's not a marriage. Uh, there's no way that just saying vows and signing a paper make two men uh, married or two women married. God's definition is a union between a man and a woman. It's probably illegal to say in some states now, uh, but it's the way it is. In Genesis, it says, A man shall leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife. Leave and cleave. Now, this is a, a, extremely important in a marriage relationship. There's a shift in the authority structure when leaving and cleaving takes place. The young man goes from obeying his parents to being a leader in his own home. And there are moms and there are dads who won't let their son and daughter go. Um, you might could think of an instance where this has happened, and the mom or the dad inserts their hand into the marriage relationship and through manipulation tries to dictate what goes on when the boy or the girl has left home and has started their own family unit. It's very dangerous. Sometimes it's up to the, the young people to say, 
Mom, Dad, thank you for your advice, but we have left home. We have started our own family unit, and now we need to do what God wants us to do. Leaving and cleaving, though, I think is more than just mother and father. I think it's any relationship besides your, your wife. All other relationships besides God. God needs to be your central. Jesus needs to be your central relationship. But when I got married, my best friend wasn't Jeffrey anymore. Okay? I had a new best friend. And she's sitting back there. <laughs> um, and all my other relationships become way down here. You know, and they're like, well, they're not. It's not that these relationships weren't important. But so let's say I was texting another girl before I got married. I quit texting other girls. I didn't need other girls speaking into my life. And if I had to text another female, my wife, I, I let her see my phone. She knows we didn't have things where messages would automatically delete or whatever. So you could sneak around behind your wife's back. You know. I wanted to be open with her, and if I had to text someone, I would tell her that I had to text this person, explain why I had to text that person, because I wanted that open relationship, and I didn't want to have other relationships coming into my life that are tearing down our marriage. I heard the other day that counselors will tell you that Facebook is now the leading cause of affairs. And I didn't know this, but they say what's happening is that men and women are going on Facebook and they're saying, huh, you know that high school sweetheart I had? I wonder what she's up to today. I wonder what she's done with her life. And so they look them up. And then they start fantasizing with what life might have been like had I married someone else. If you go down that path in your mind and you don't immediately get it out of your mind, I would say that's already sin. Because every sin starts with a thought. And that's not the reason my wife and I got off of Facebook. But when I heard that, I'm, I'm thankful to be off of Facebook. But the, these, there's these little things that lead us down slippery roads of destruction. Every sin begins with a thought. And people always say, well, I didn't think about that, or it even shocked me that I did that. Uh, Titus 1.15 says, Under the pure all things are pure, but unto them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure, but even their mind and conscience is defiled. I heard of a couple that was struggling in their marriage, and they sought counselors and committed their marriage to the Lord. And they sent a, little, a, church, uh, a letter to the church a little while later. And they said, God's been faithful, and we have a good marriage now. And they said, we not only love each other, we now even like each other. Okay? <laughs> so, what, what's going on there? But I think there's more to that than you know, meets the eye. We can have love, but when God's love is in our hearts, and we are working together, and we get all the sin out, and we get everything out that's going against our marriage, we can not only love each other, but we can actually like each other, and we can enjoy spending time together. 
I see many of our marriages that should be heaven on earth, or I shouldn't say many, but I see some marriages, and it seems like it's more a struggle of endurance than it is a heaven on earth. Marriage isn't something to take on lightly. And who you marry could very well decide where you'll spend eternity. So keep that in mind, young people. So marriage is a God-ordained institution. How do we know this? Well, several reasons. The main one is the stronger your marriage is, especially a godly marriage, the more it brings God glory. The stronger your marriage is, the more it negates anything Satan wants to do. So I think it's a marriage, uh, marriage is a God-ordained institution. What makes marriage official? Well, here's what I've come up with. In some states, there's what's called common law marriage. Have you ever heard of common law marriage? Common law marriage means that if you live together long enough, the state will assume you're married. Um, that's only legal in about 10 states, and it was meant to protect the lady, I believe. But... Common law marriage is simply two people living together. I believe the first thing in marriage, there needs to be intent. Okay, so you don't find yourself accidentally married. Is that a fair statement? Uh, while we were living together, now we're married. No, that's not how it works. I think there has to be some intention. Uh, I love this person. I want to spend the rest of my life with them. I choose to marry him. So intent. Uh, if, if not, 1 Corinthians 7, 2 it, it would say, it says uh, sexual relations outside of marriage is fornication. So you could go from fornication to marriage, so what I was doing wasn't sin anymore. That, I don't think that's how it works. Second thing I would say is commitment. So whether it's a marriage license, the vows, uh, or all of the above, there needs to be commitment. We could say formal vows, the, the witnesses, all this stuff. There's a commitment that till death do us part and that that actually means something when those vows are spoken. As Christians, we try to obey the laws of the land as long as they don't violate the scriptures. And I think in most states, I think they require a marriage license if you're to get married. So there's nothing wrong with a Christian signing a marriage license. Um, in some countries, they'll demand that you have to be married by a Catholic priest in order to be officially married. Um, I would be somewhat opposed to that. The third thing uh, from Scripture would be a separation from parents and the physical union between marriage partners. The fourth thing that makes a marriage official, and this shouldn't even need to be stated, but it needs, it needs to be between a man and a woman. Not a man and a man, not a woman and a woman, but between a man and a woman. Um, God's original intent was not for multiple partners. And when I thought of, you know, Solomon, probably the worst transgressor of them all, I don't know how many wives he had and how many concubines, but that didn't work out good for him, did it? And nowhere in the New Testament will you see the thing of multiple partners. So one man, one woman, for life. Well, the next message, uh, we'll look more at the home. We'll probably look at the, the role of the man. But when you think about them becoming one, I think that there's so, when a separation occurs, I think that's why there's so much destruction. Because God, in some way that I cannot explain, when a man and a woman are married, they become one. So when you separate one, you're not ending up with two again. 
you're ending up with broken pieces. And that's something to keep in mind if you're not married and you're looking to marry. Um, keep the, the union holy and good. So let, as the Lord leads, we'll look at the, the man's role within the church. And God, if you're not married, if you're single, God bless you in your singlehood because there, there's much work in the kingdom of God for all the above. So bless you as you serve him.